0: Good morning everybody. It's good to be with you today. Glad you're here as we're going to be wrapping up this morning a six-week kind of mini-series we've been doing on Jesus's miracles, looking at how these miracles reveal who Jesus really is as he responds to the deep needs of people. This morning's story is perhaps one of the most bizarre. It's the healing of a demon-possessed man recorded for us in the gospel of Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible or an app that you want to open for a little bit, Mark chapter 5. Next Sunday, we're going to start a new six-week series called, I'm Spiritual But Not Religious, and we'll explore some of the basic teachings of Jesus and, and how they might connect with our modern search for spirituality. Along that with that message series, there's going to be a new class for adults called Jesus Among Secular Gods, and it's going to be taught at two different times, once on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock by Elder Dan Doherty. Then I'm going to be teaching the class on Tuesday evenings at 7.30. Um, the, I hope you'll consider joining in. The great thing about having it twice is if you have to miss a class, you can make it up at the other time. There's more information about the class in your bulletin. Uh, So let's now hear the beginning of this amazing story of Jesus' encounter with one wild and crazy guy, Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Jesus and his disciples went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came out of the tombs to greet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. We're going to hold up right there for now. We'll continue this story in a little bit. This story is mainly about power. What kind of power or authority does Jesus really have? What makes him powerful? How is he going to use his power? Power and the struggle for power is such a common thing in our world today. People jockeying for power in the political world, this ugly jousting between Congress and the President, between the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, the power dynamics between bosses and employees, accusations of the abuse of power by coaches, by priests, by TV hosts, by Boy Scout leaders, by Hollywood producers, all kinds of people with power, and so many innocent victims. So many ways that a little bit of power can go to a person's head. Even in a marriage, too often a husband and wife engage in this tug of war over the kids or over the finances, the calendar, or even who's going to do the dishes. In a church, petty power struggles between church leaders is one of the top things that can absolutely ruin a church. In a circle of friends, people are pressured to pick sides in whatever drama is going on in the latest Snapchat or Twitter war. Power dynamics are just everywhere, and too often the people who wield that power, even a little bit of power, it kind of messes them up. Give someone a little bit of power, and they can kind of go crazy. And it seems like the emotionally unhealthy people, they kind of gravitate towards gaining power. How many of us have known the little general who commands the school booster club, the boss of the Bible study who knows all the answers, the czar of the committee who wants to tell everyone else what to do? The only thing that kind of unhealthy person responds to is a greater show of power that kind of puts them in their place. As the famous saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But Jesus didn't display his power like that. He didn't misuse his authority. He didn't see his power as a way of intimidating or manipulating or controlling others. He was the original servant leader, as it says in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the gospel writer Mark is interested in power. In fact, you could say that his whole gospel is kind of a case study in power about Jesus and his power. In chapter 1, Mark shows us Jesus driving out the evil spirit, and as it exits the man, he does it with a shriek and all kinds of convulsions, and the people who witness it say, What is this, a new teaching with authority with power they recognize something different about jesus that's followed by a series of healings and exorcisms that make jesus the talk of the town in chapter 2 jesus is confronted by this paralyzed man who gets lowered down through the roof and that was the sermon a couple weeks ago there's a surprise twist because jesus automatically forgives the man's sins and people know only god can forgive sin and Jesus said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority, has on power on earth to forgive sins, and then he heals the man. Jesus demonstrates that he has the power not only over the physical, but also over the spiritual. He has cosmic, divine power. Jesus goes on to claim that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that he's the one who deserves to be worshipped, and at this point, his enemies are thinking, okay, his power has gone to his head. In chapter 3 Jesus continues this display of power by healing a man with a shriveled hand. And with each healing, the crowds that are following him grow larger and larger and larger. The crowds become so large that in chapter 4, he decides he's just got to get away. It's too much. Because as powerful as he is, he is still human. He's divine and he's human. And his body needed rest. So in chapter 4, the story right before the one that we read for this morning... We're told that late in the evening, the disciples get a boat, and they're, all, they're taking Jesus across the Sea of Galilee for a little R&R, hopefully to a place that's a little quieter. But while they're out in the middle of the lake, a sudden squall comes up. It's common on the Sea of Galilee, even to this day. It's known for its sudden storms. Jesus is tired. He's zonked out on a cushion in the back of the boat. They have to shake him and wake him up, and they say, help, we're getting swamped by the waves. Now remember, most of his disciples were professional swim, uh, fishermen. They knew boats. They knew storms. That was their bread and butter. But this storm had them spooked, so they turned to Jesus because they knew he had a power that they did not have. And, of course, Jesus almost kind of groggily calms the storm. He says, be quiet. As simple as that. The sea became perfectly calm, we're told. That wasn't natural. That's not the way water calms down after a storm. You know, it takes a while for the waves to settle down. But not with Jesus. He said, Quiet. It became quiet. Actually, these are the exact same words he used with that demon-possessed man in chapter 1 who came at him ranting and raving, be quiet. And that man's storm-tossed soul settled down into deliverance. When the waters were calm, the disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were getting a sense of the power that emanated from the very core of Jesus. That story of Jesus' power over nature sets the backdrop for this story, another amazing demonstration of Jesus' power with this man that we now call the Gerasene demoniac. This is actually a great Halloween story. You know, get the picture. I mean, Jesus and his disciples, they started off across the Sea of Galilee. It was late at night when they got going. It's about 13 miles across to where they landed in this region of the Gerasenes, which is now kind of at the juncture between where Israel, Syria, and Jordan meet. And a group of us from the church were in Jordan a few years ago. We actually stood on the bluff, the hillside above, looking down from the ruins of Um Kwas that overlooked the spot where this boat actually landed. So when they arrived after a 13-mile voyage, it was probably early in the morning, you know, that time of mist and shadows. But are hovering over the water. They're soaked to the skin. All they want to do is get a dry and warm place to sleep. But where they land is near some cliffs where people carve out tombs from the soft limestone. And no sooner do their toes hit the beach than this wild man comes running naked out of the tombs. Now, anytime a naked man comes running at you early in the morning, it's a bad day, okay? He's flailing away. He's got broken chains on his wrists and ankles. He's bruised. He's bloody by his own hand. He's screaming about torture and torment. I mean, this is a moment worthy of a Stephen King movie. But the story brings up an uncomfortable topic, uncomfortable for people in our Western rationalistic culture, this whole idea of demons and the devil. All that makes us rationalistic people kind of squirm a bit. The idea that there is real spiritual evil in the world that we might have to encounter, that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't fit kind of the mechanical playbook that we have of the universe. So like when the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, when we read that, Western people don't instantly embrace that, that sense of spiritual warfare. Sounds like mumbo-jumbo, sounds superstition. Now, in other cultures, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, in fact, most places in the world, the idea of real conflict between spiritual good and spiritual evil is not an unusual concept. It's embraced. It helps people, both Christian and non-Christian. helps people kind of make sense of reality, helps them make sense of what's going on in the world. But here in the West, people often just kind of dismiss this as superstition. Our rationality, we think, makes us superior. The idea that there's more to this world than what is just human and natural, more than what is just flesh and blood, it's kind of foreign to us. But you know what, unless you're able to embrace this idea, you actually won't get very far with Jesus. Our Western world thinks that everything has a natural cause and a scientific explanation. If someone behaves badly, it must be because of psychological factors, a disease in their brain or sociological factors, their family of origin, they were raised in poverty, their education or whatever. This kind of rational progressivism was very popular throughout the 20th century. Built on the idea that you know, once we know the cause of some bad behavior, well we can fix it. We can fix it through science, we can figure it out, we can fix it, better education, that's what we need, better food, stable families, more equitable economy. All those things will eliminate all the great evils of the world like war and famine and injustice and poverty and racism and all the rest. That whole way of thinking has worn pretty thin. The world is not getting better and better. The 20th century turned out to be the most highly educated, the most economically prosperous century of all time and the most deadly in terms of casualties in war and genocide, the Holocaust, preventable disease, famine and all the rest. All of this evil mostly perpetrated by highly educated and culturally sophisticated people. So on the macro level, on the micro level, the world is not getting better and better. So this idea is kind of wearing thin. Andrew Delbanco is a leading liberal scholar at Columbia University. A while back, he wrote a book entitled, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. Just listen to a few sentences. He writes, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources to cope with it. We jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic or transcendent evil. We don't believe that. We don't even like to use the word evil because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms, dysfunctional, pathological. We don't use moral termolo- terminology. It goes on to say that if you take an honest look, it's what's happened in our world, and he cites the Holocaust and the genocides. And, and since that book was written, I think we would add these school shootings and these terrible suicide bombers, and, you know, how, how can those things be explained purely through psychology or economics? If we look at the horrific things people do to each other that they do to innocent children, not all of that can be explained purely as mental illness or a crime of passion. He goes on to quote some lines from the scene of a movie you may remember, Silence of the Lambs, where Jodie Foster plays a young FBI agent named Clarice Starling, who has this interview with this vicious but brilliant serial killer, Hannibal Lecter, played by very creepily Anthony Hopkins. As she's going into the room to interview him, she says to her companion, what happened to him that he became so twisted and so cruel? And Hannibal Lecter overhears her, which is a bad thing. And he says to her, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up on good and evil for behaviorism. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say I am evil? Andrew Delbanco writes that modern people cannot answer that question. He concludes by saying that in the secular West, we've moved from a religious understanding of evil to a perplexed helplessness. In contrast, the Bible teaches clearly the reality of spiritual evil, that created beings, angels, and humans, both exercising their free will, they, we, chose against God. God didn't cause evil, but it happened because he allowed free will. Was that a good decision on God's part? Well, that's above my pay grade, and you're going to have to take that up with him. So there are real spiritual forces at work in our universe, forces set against God, set against all things good and whole and wholesome. And if you struggle with that idea of just the existence of evil, then you might have to ask yourself, do you really believe in God? Because if you really believe in a good supernatural force then aren't you being a little inconsistent if you can't even believe in the possibility of an evil force? Not a being equal to God. It's not a yin and yang thing. There's no struggle between equal forces. That is not what the Bible teaches. God reigns supreme. And his good will eventually conquer all evil. And that's the power Jesus is demonstrating here in this story. His absolute power over evil in all its forms. You know, our main problem in understanding and confronting this kind of spiritual evil is that the whole area has been hijacked by Hollywood. You know, I've checked every page of the Bible. There are no Freddy Krueger-style monsters. Nobody's head spins around. Nobody throws up pea soup. All that comes more from Hollywood's twisted imagination, not from Scripture. There is no power struggle here. There are no incantations, no magic words, no rituals, no secret signs, no need for a crucifix or any relic, just the word of Jesus. That's all that is ever needed. The word of Jesus, and the battle's over. One punch, and Jesus is the winner. It's a knockout two seconds into the first round. This man has been demonized. And that's more the idea of the Greek word that's used here, that's often translated demon possession. But possession seems to imply ownership or that the person has no control or no responsibility over their state. Demonized means under the influence of, tormented by, in the grip of, but not owned. It's evident in Scripture that there are different degrees of influence by which the devil and his four fallen angels torment. And, you know, that's what a demon is. It's a fallen angel who was cast out of heaven along with Satan before our world was even created. This man is perhaps an extreme case, living in squalor. He's filthy on the inside and out, isolated, cut off from society, alone. And being demonized has affected him physically so that he has great strength to break chains, feel no pain, sort of like somebody who's high on PCP. And then there's this self-harming, the cutting, the self-loathing, All of this is linked to this man who is being tortured in the worst possible ways. Now, mental illness is a real thing, but this is not mental illness here. This is a spiritual oppression. Sometimes it can look similar. Sometimes it definitely overlaps, but this is a spiritual oppression. and does affect him mentally, but the root cause is not a medical condition. Now, Jesus not afraid of this man. When he comes up running wildly, when he's yelling and falling at Jesus' feet, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Jesus just calmly says, what is your name? And the man gives that very creepy reply. My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion of demons. A legion was a unit in the Roman army of 6,000 soldiers doesn't mean the man had 6,000 demons. It just means the multiplicity of evil within his tormented personality. His preferred pronouns were we, us, and our. My name is Legion, for we are many. That identity confusion in him, that inner turmoil in his personality was rooted in spiritual evil, and he needed to be set free. So let's pick up the story now in verse 9. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This is such an odd conversation where the demons try to bargain with Jesus over their self-preservation. Jesus has all authority here to destroy them for all eternity. In fact, we're told that's the great hope of heaven. When Jesus reigns in full power, he will crush all evil and erase it from the universe. This story is only like a thumbnail sketch. It's a preview. It's an appetizer of that great ultimate victory. So when the demons ask to be sent into the pigs, which Jesus does, but it's really with the same result. The herd of swine rush to their own demise and the demons are destroyed anyway. Now the reason Jesus acquiesced to their request was not for them, but for the man now freed of their influence, The man and all who witnessed his spiritual release, they needed something powerful, something visible, to bring testimony to the fact that he was indeed healed and set free. And the demons were sent into the abyss where they belong. But what a strange reaction from the people of the community who came out to see what happened. Instead of rejoicing with the man whom they knew, instead of rejoicing, seeing him sane, at peace, clothed, listening to Jesus... Instead of rejoicing, they plead with Jesus to leave, to get out of town pronto. Here's your hat. What's your hurry? The economic loss of the herd of pigs meant more to them than this man's destiny. Maybe they were just creeped out by the whole thing. We don't really know. But possibly this was a large herd of pigs, 2,000. That's a lot of money to them. It was their livelihood, and they didn't want Jesus messing things up. They'd rather he just leave them alone, and isn't that why a lot of people turn away from Christ. They'd just rather be left alone because Jesus has this way of making demands on people to turn away from their false idols, like money. Folks, we should never forget that we live in a fallen world where there is real spiritual evil. C.S. Lewis said it best in his satiric novel, The uh, Screwtape Letters. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So don't disbelieve, but also don't overbelieve in the power of evil because Jesus stands victorious. There is such horrific stuff that happens every day in our world which cannot be explained away by psychology or economics or medicine. To one degree or another, evil is influencing the human heart. And the only antidote is the Word of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the power of prayer. Jesus conquering sin on the cross, defeating death and the resurrection, destroying evil when He comes again. And until then, we have to use the weapons of spiritual warfare that He's given us. The truth of God's Word, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer. Those three things work together to get Jesus' power flowing into your life. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the power of prayer. You need to be aware that there is a spiritual battle going on around you and to take up his weapons that he's offered you. Now, the passage closes this way, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, and Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This crazed, demon-possessed wild man, now healed and whole, was the very first non-Jewish person to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. He wasn't sent as a missionary to some far-off land. Jesus said, go home. Your family misses you. You've been disconnected from them for a long time. Go to your own family. Go to your people. Go to your tribe. Reconnect with them. He didn't say go door to door, hand out pamphlets. He didn't say start preaching in the public square. He said, go to your people and live your life. Let your changed life be your testimony. But use your words too. Don't be a silent witness Tell your story of how Jesus is Lord and how he changed your life. Be willing to share your story because no one can argue with what happened in your life. No one can contradict the story of how Jesus made you whole and healed you. Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, Jesus said. That's what Jesus said to him. I think he's saying the same thing to us today. The power of Jesus is yours too. And whatever struggles you're gonna face this week, in whatever battles you're facing, against the visible, against the invisible, against all the wiles of the evil one. Spiritual warfare is a real thing, and Jesus offers to you the power of the word of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, and the power of prayer. Jesus stands in victory, and he's got your back. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this disturbing passage because it upsets our culture's way of looking at things, to realize that, yes, there is this thing called spiritual evil. People can do evil things. People can even become possessed by evil in what they do. How can that not be true when we see some of the horrific things that are done? That evil is the only rational explanation. And, Lord, we come against that. We know that there are spiritual forces at work in our country, in our world, in our own communities, spiritual forces at work trying to to commandeer life, trying to destroy the good that God is doing, trying to destroy relationships and families, and trying to prevent people from turning to Jesus. There's so many ways in which we see real spiritual evil at work. Lord, help us not to be naive that somehow we think we can face that on our own. We need your real spiritual power, the power of the Word, the power of the Spirit, the power of prayer, Lord. Help us to go into battle fully equipped this week to know that you're our deliverer. You're the one, one punch, and the battle's done. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the victor. In your name we pray, amen.